Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 US election. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. So I am delighted to welcome Skylar Baker-Jordan back onto the podcast, our friend of the pod back joining me again today. Welcome back, Skylar. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It is a thrill to speak to anyone live from beautiful state of Tennessee in this buggy June weather. <laughs> so many bugs. So many bugs. So many bugs. Um, so we've got a lot to cover on the podcast today. Um, I think the main focus of the conversation is um, Skyler and I are going to have a little chat about um, which states are currently swing states, what that means, and what the possible paths to victory for a Biden campaign would be, um, either if the polls continue to be as good as they are, or if things change, where would we have to start um, start looking more critically? Um, but before we do that, um, first of all, before I do anything else, I need to say happy Hamilton Day. <laughs> yeah. Because for those of you who are not as weirdly obsessive as we are, today is the day that the Hamilton film drops on Disney Plus, and Skylar and I will be live to, live streaming it tonight um, in a festive party atmosphere with some other friends. So, um, big up to all my Hamilton fans in the in the house. <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be so much fun. I can't. I'm gonna sing along the whole time, so you all are just gonna have to deal with like the off key bad singing. I mean, it will be, we'll all be on mute, so you won't hear it, but. Yeah, but I, I think I think that's the beauty of it. Like, you know, it, it's terrifying that there are so many words in the Hamilton musical, and I know so many of them. <laughs> I know. I was thinking the same thing the other day. Like, like, it's nothing but songs, and I swear I know the lyrics to every song. If I put that much energy into, like, learning French, maybe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right or like i don't know nuclear physics i could do something useful in life oh but it wouldn't be as fun but it wouldn't be as fun so there you go so if push comes to shove i will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love um <laughs> so there you go on this day of days um day of joy um i think the first thing i wanted to cover off from a news point of view um is a couple interesting things happened this week one of which is that both campaigns released their um quarterly fundraising numbers and for the for the first quarter for the first time in quarterly fundraising numbers uh the biden campaign and the dnc in its kind of collective funding arm um have outraised the trump campaign so the Biden campaign um, combined with the DNC this quarter raised about 266, uh, no, sorry, the, the Trump campaign raised $266 million in conjunction with the RNC, whereas the Biden campaign raised $282 million. So um, apart from the fact that we've, you know, won some imaginary money raise, <laughs> um, it, it feels like a, an encouraging sign for enthusiasm and uh, commitment of our, our voters. But what do you reckon? Well, I think that you're right. I think it's an encouraging sign for the Biden campaign and for Democrats more generally that uh, Joe Biden was able to outraise uh, an incumbent president, um, especially so relatively early in the campaign. I mean, you know, the primaries just ended. We've only just solidified around a nominee. Um, and I think that it's a good sign for Democrats that we are disenthusiastic about, if not Joe Biden in particular, and it might be enthusiasm about Joe Biden, I don't know. My gut is that it's enthusiasm about just defeating Donald Trump. Yeah. And 
you're not seeing from the left of the party the the sort of at least vocal division that you saw in 2016. I've noticed that they're a lot quieter this mm. time around. Even though know, not everyone's on board with Joe Biden, the the, the criticism is a much is much more muted. Um, and I think that donors in general, you know, Biden's touting sort of the micro donations that he received. He's held some big money fundraisers as well, but he's touting the micro donations. Donors, voters, everyday people are really, really passionate and adamant that we have to get that orange menace out of the White House. And so they're going to put their money where their mouth is in ways that perhaps they haven't in the past. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, I think it's interesting because I the point about the left of the party and the Sanders wing of the party, however you want to describe it, um, I think is interesting. I think Bernie Sanders, to his enormous credit, has been very clear and unambiguous in the signals that he's been trying to send to his base um, that we have to be one party and that he is personally very excited to be out there campaigning for Joe Biden. And that does make a difference, even though people make their own decisions. Of course, we all follow signals from our leaders. Um, and that matters. And I think it's interesting because the Trump campaign, I read an interesting article in the Post this week where they were talking about the fact that the Trump campaign touts an enthusiasm gap where they say a higher proportion of his voters are prepared to are, are excited about voting for him, which is true. Joe Biden's um, support, even though it's much higher than than Donald Trump's support in the current polling, um, seems to come less from people who are wildly enthusiastic about him. But I think the interesting point about that is that you only get to vote once, right? And and a, a grudging vote counts just as much as a as a as an excited vote. Um, and the thing is that by kind of by maximizing the enthusiasm of a very small base of voters, Trump has arguably turned away all of the, the winnable, persuadable kind of on the edge voters. And, and so, of course, all those people, when they moved over to Biden, are not as enthusiastic about him because they were less certain. But you want to have them in your corner. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, certainly you want to, the, the, the mythical swing voter, um, you know, you want to be able to win them over and they're never going to be as excited to vote for you as someone else. My fear is um, that excited voters, that enthusiasm gap um, matters because excited voters turn out. Mm. And with everything going on in the world right now, you, you know, just the pandemic for one, but God forbid there's bad weather in Milwaukee on yeah. election day. You know, if you don't have a candidate who generates excitement, are those voters who say they're going to support him in a poll, you know, if they're asked by a pollster on a phone, really going to brave a Milwaukee blizzard in the middle of a pandemic to, to go out and vote? You know, are they going to possibly risk their lives? to cast a vote for Joe Biden. So so we have to we have to close the enthusiasm gap even if right now it doesn't look like it matters too much mm. because come election day it could make the difference. Yeah, I think I think it's true, but I think coming back to your earlier point about People are very, very excited to vote Democrat in this election, but it's probably not that they're necessarily just excited to vote for Joe Biden, although he certainly has his fans. Um, but I think there is a very strong feeling of excitement to vote Donald Trump out of office. Um, and I think that will carry us a long way. I, I, and I think you're right. I, I think I think I I think you're right. I think I'm just a little apprehensive about banking on people coming out to vote against something rather than for something. 
because people who are voting for something tend to be much more reliable. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true, but I also think that there are fewer and fewer such people in the world in that negative partisanship has driven, like, people are much more motivated, motivated, like, there are many more people who think in terms of opposition as opposed to positivity, which is a problem for Democrats, because to govern, you need people who are excited about what they can do, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 that's a very good point. So, um, yeah, but I mean, the whole thing is, <laughs> I mean, right now, it, it's a typical Democratic thing, isn't it, that we're kind of doing well in the polls, but we're still convinced something's going to something's going to go terribly wrong. And, and I think with some justification, like we have good reason to fear. That's it. I think I still have like flashbacks, um, like emotional trauma from 2016. Oh. And <laughs> Uh, from both the EU referendum, <laughs> the general election in the U.S. that that I'm I'm like I'm not counting my chickens before they hatch. I'm not getting my hopes up. Like, yeah, is it just me? Work. Because every year since 2016, I've been saying, "Well, this is the worst year." <laughs> I feel like a lot of people have. Um, I am kind of a glass half empty person, generally speaking. Sure. So. You know, there's a quote from Weezer and Steel Magnolias when uh, Anel, this naive young woman, says, I don't see how things could possibly get worse. And Weezer says, of course they can. That's kind of my mentality. They can always get worse. They can always get worse. So that's kind of <laughs> mentality in general. So I'm like, well, this tracks. Like, Fair but, enough. But you have to be optimistic. Voters want optimism. And and I, I, I'm trying to, to look on the sunny side because, yeah. you know, the, the the alternative is just too horrid right well let's 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 move back to the dark side for a moment because one of the things you alluded to is the challenge of just getting people to the polls um we do have a huge logistical problem um with COVID 19 in terms of voter registration and one of the things that um that we're starting to see in the data is not because of anyone's enthusiasm or lack of enthusiasm but just because of the practicalities of living during a pandemic voter registrations are down new voter registrations are down in most states of the country at this point in the cycle. They were up in, in January and February um, compared to 2016 and compared to 2018, but have gone down March, April, May, June um, for obvious reasons. People who used to register when they would go to the get their driver's license are not registering. People who used to register at festivals and events in their community are not registering. Um, and we have very few opportunities to make up that deficit. And it's unclear to me yet how big of an impact that will make. So that's another thing that we need to be thoughtful about as we manage this voting process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I moved to Tennessee uh, a few months ago, not very long. Well, I guess it's been about eight months ago now. But I was still at the last primary registered in, in North Carolina. Right. Um, so I need to switch my voter registration to Tennessee. And I was thinking about that just this morning. Like, God, I'm going to have to go down to the DMV. I'm going to have to do all of this. I'm going to have to stand in line and be in person because you can't register from out of state online like you can. I, I think I'm not sure. But from what I understand, Tennessee will allow you to switch your registration online if you're yeah. already a Tennessee resident. And, you know, you weigh the cost. You do. You weigh the cost about, you know, okay, well, how long am I going to have to wear the mask? And is everybody else going to be wearing a mask? And how many people am I going to be? It's it's frightening. 
Um, of course, I'm going to register because it is my civic duty. And yeah. if I die for something, it's going to be to get that orange menace out of the White House. But <laughs> um, <laughs> like, you know, it's the but but you you worry and, and yeah. I worry about how that's going to affect turnout in general. Yeah. So I always put a message at the end of the podcast that says, go and request your absentee ballots now, but I'm just going to stick it in now. Go and request your absentee ballots now, because um, if you can vote from vote, vote absentee and vote by mail. And in most states you can, in many states, you can do it with no excuse. In almost every state, you can do it with a good excuse. Like I fear dying in a global pandemic. I'm going to stipulate that sounds like a pretty good excuse to me. Um, so people should just go ahead. I think you, everyone should work on the assumption that they that they are planning on voting by post this year for a couple of reasons. One, because it will keep the lines shorter for those who have to vote in person. Everybody who forgets to register doesn't get there in time. The fewer people they have in line in front of them, the more likelihood they are of getting, getting through it. But also, we just don't know what the situation is going to be. We don't know where we're going to be with this disease come November. And I just I don't think you should take that risk just go go do it <laughs> that is very good advice <laughs> right speaking of taking your life to, in your hands to vote uh the good people of kentucky did that was it last week um they participated in a primary process in kentucky new york and uh, several other states um and a very interesting thing happened in kentucky where amy mcgrath who was the um sort of dnc preferred candidate in that primary and who until kind of late in the primary race was 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 kind of being talked about as as the clear front runner indeed for, for virtually certain candidate she wound up facing a very close race against charles brooker charles booker uh an african-american candidate um who was not who was uh favored by elizabeth warren and um kind of aligned himself with the aoc wing of the party um i think it wound up being about 48 46 and booker just squeaked it out skyler what does it all mean <laughs> Um, well, uh, you mean McGrath just squeaked it out. Yeah, so McGrath just squeaked it out, yep. Uh, so Kentucky's my home state. Yeah. Uh, and it is, it is an interesting, uh, place full of paradox. Um, I have watched this Senate race with interest and I have been very disappointed in the way that the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee um, just sort of ground Amy McGrath. Um, they saw in her a candidate they thought was quote unquote Kentucky. That's what they thought would appeal to Kentucky. And she's, you know, conservative, wasn't even a Democrat until two or three years ago. She was an independent before then. Um, she was a veteran, uh, kind of had this good old country woman vibe about her. Um, she makes it, great ads. It, she, she, she may do, um, but she plays into what Washington stereotype of Kentucky is. Right. I don't think she ever really planned on winning the uh, November election against McConnell. Um, McConnell is very unpopular in Kentucky, but um, he also has a lot of entrenched interests there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's been in the Senate for close to 40 years now. Um, he brings home the bacon. Um, he's a great, uh, he's great at pork barrels. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. his, and uh, so, so, you know, 
he has a lot of a lot of entrenched support, even though the polls don't reflect that. And Kentucky is a somewhat conservative state. Charles Booker seemed to come out of nowhere, sort of buoyed, I think, in part by the burgeoning Black Lives Matter movement, which maybe burgeoning isn't the word considering the Black Lives Matter movement's been around for years now, but uh, sort of a resurgence in coverage of it and and in protests. Um, And Charles Booker suddenly got the attention he should have been getting from day one. Um, certainly, and the endorsement from Elizabeth Warren helped, you know, mm-hmm. fight on him. Um, it doesn't surprise me that Democrats in Kentucky, once they found out about him and got to hear him speak, were energized by him. Yeah. Uh, Kentucky, by and large, is a more conservative state, but there is a very radical tradition in Kentucky both in Louisville, where Booker is from, which was, you know, it's a river city. There were a lot of unions there. A lot of good Irish Catholic Democrats have lived there for a very, very long time. Um, but also in eastern Kentucky, up in the mm-hmm. hollers from where union organizing and labor activism have been a part of our culture for 100 years because of coal mines. Mm-hmm. And I mean, those rednecks don't play. They'll they'll take guns to to you know <laughs> mine owners and, <laughs> and you know scabs. I mean, they, there have literally been the Harlem County War and the Coal Creek <laughs> War here in Tennessee. I mean, Appalachia knows about labor activism in a way that much of the country does not. And so, it did not surprise me that that Kentucky Democrats would embrace uh, someone like Booker because there is a very progressive left-wing element within the bluegrass state that that most people don't ever hear about um i think that booker could have energized people in a way mcgrath is not going to um just talking to friends who are back in kentucky um some of them are one of them who really surprised me because you know, you've heard the Bernie bros talk about, I'm not voting for Biden, you know. Um, she's not She's not a Bernie Sanders or bust kind of person. But she was really conflicted about whether she would vote for McGrath. Interesting. Um, she'll vote for Biden, but she doesn't know if she'll vote for McGrath because she sees him as nothing but Mitch McConnell uh, with a D next to her name, you know. And mm-hmm. she's making comment, you know, which she retracted, I think, but she's flipped on it a few times about, you know, how she would have voted to approve Kavanaugh. Uh, yeah. Then she said she wouldn't. Um, yeah. And I think she said she would again, and then she said she wouldn't. Um, yeah, it was such a flub. I mean, just yeah. such an own goal. And that was a year ago. She made that comment like a year ago, and it stuck with her. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you know, it's other things. She's She's very middle of the road. She's very moderate. She's very... Uh, almost, I would say, socially conservative. Um, and she, you know, I, I don't think she inspires a lot of um, excitement in people. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen Kentucky run candidates like her before against Republicans and lose. But, you know, it's also just not... It's also not all her fault, though. She's fighting an uphill battle. And anyone, Booker would have been fighting the same uphill battle. It's been 20 years um, since Kentucky had had a a Democratic senator. Wendell Ford retired, I think, in like 1999. Mm. 
and that was it. That's the yeah. last. So you know, it's. And, and then I see. Sorry, I've got. I, I won't keep rambling on, but I do want to. <laughs> I see a lot of a lot of national Democrats, and I wrote about this for the Independent last November when Andy Bashir was elected governor. A lot of national Democrats are pointing to that and saying, oh, you know, Kentucky, Kentucky could be in play, at least in the Senate, we could defeat McConnell. And it betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of Kentucky politics, where Kentucky has always been blue at a state level to some degree, mm -hmm. and purple. Um, we've had two Republican governors in the last 50 to 100 years, mm -hmm. and neither of them has been reelected to a second term. So, you know, Kentucky at a state level tends to be at least purple, if not blue. Um, but at a national federal level, um, it, it, it tends to be red. And there, there are a lot of reasons for that. And a lot of it has to do with evangelical voters and culture war. Right. So my take on the Kentucky race has always been, and I, I have to put my hand up, I did not see Charles Booker coming. I am not from Kentucky. You know, I only I only get the glimpse that the Washington press corps occasionally gives us of what's going on in states like Kentucky. So, um, you know, I was unaware of the existence of Charles Booker until pretty late in the process and then felt like an idiot for having having missed such an interesting story. Um, but my take on the race kind of way back when has always been I don't expect us to win this Senate race. But I am happy for people to throw money at Amy McGrath to give it a go, because if nothing else, it will distract and annoy Kay, <laughs> uh, Mitch McConnell. And I am happy to cause him any pain that I can. <laughs> and in a, le in a less petty way, I just generally want the Republican Party to be playing defense everywhere. I want us to run everywhere with good candidates, if only so that we learn how to run in some of these states. And if McGrath has a go and doesn't, it doesn't work, then we've got data for the next time around. That's my theory. What do, you, what do you think? I think it's a good theory. And I think that, you know, one of the one of the biggest gripes about Kentucky Democrats, and I I went to high school in Kentucky. I went to college in Kentucky. Um, I was very involved in um, Kentucky politics and, and activism in Kentucky while I was there. And one of the, this was, you know, I left Kentucky in 2011, so it's been nine years. But the, the, the same gripe I heard back in the 2000s when I was involved in grassroots politics there is the same gripe I still hear from friends back home. And mm -hmm. it's that the Democratic Party, the National Party, does not spend money in Kentucky. They do not act like Kentucky is a winnable state. And yeah. you cannot win an election if you are outspent two to one. And so... You know, I, I, I'm sitting here sort of criticizing the DSCC for handpicking uh, McGrath, but I also really kind of want to couch my criticism a little because I want them to spend money and <laughs> to, <laughs> to it, it, I want them to throw money there. Um, yeah. at not just her, but at all of our candidates. Yeah. Um, you know, from state representatives on up to U.S. Senate. Like, I, I want Democrats to be competitive there. And they can. They can. We've seen that at the state level. You know, um, my former constituency of Bowling Green in 2018 elected an incredibly progressive left-wing state representative uh, named Patty Mentor. Um, and I'm calling her, I'm giving sort of name-checking her because she's she's a wonderful, wonderful state representative with like solid like left-wing credentials she's also my mentor she is a professor at western kentucky university amazing uh, and she she was one of many democrats who were elected in kentucky who had really great 
progressive credentials. So it can be done, but you have to spend the money there. We have to stop pretending that yeah. half the country is never going to vote for us. Yeah. We can't win that way. We yeah. can't go. And, and that's the one thing. I mean, whatever you may think about Amy, Amy McGrath's performance in the primary, and I certainly had a lot of issues with her, um, you know, statement of support for Brett Kavanaugh, which was just really uncalled for. Um, she has raised a lot of money and she has, in fact, I think, outraised Mitch McConnell in this race. So um, as far as I'm concerned, she has hit my KPI of scare the living crap out of Mitch McConnell. Um, he he is still likely to win that race, but I want him to work for it. So um, I, I'm tired of Democrats giving up on places, just like you're saying. I'm tired of us them giving up on places where, where even if we can't win, we can run. And people deserve to hear what we have to say. Well, and, and I think that you you hit the nail on the head earlier. You know, even if we don't win, at least we're getting some data for the next time but we're also building on our losses we're we're, yeah. we're sort of laying a foundation and building the groundwork and the framework for which to run later you know there have been a lot of states especially in places like the south where we have sort of had zero presence yeah uh, for for a very long time that we're going to have to rebuild from the ground up and it's going to take uh a decade or more possibly but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it we absolutely should be doing it. There's no reason why we can't have another Doug Jones. Yep. A hundred percent. And that brings me very nicely onto the next section that I want to talk about, because states that were never swinging before suddenly look like swing states in this cycle, which is just a really great opportunity to point out that, you know, the better organized we are in some of these places that are suddenly competitive, the more opportunities we can create there. Um so I wanted us to have a conversation this week about um, which which states are the swing states um, and kind of what the what the prospects are in each of those places. So to set a benchmark here, um, the Real Clear Politics website cur currently lists, based on its polling averages, currently lists twelve states as in the sort of toss up category. So that's you know pretty pretty close. Um, and those states are Nevada, Arizona, Texas, Georgia, Florida, North Carolina. Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Iowa. Skylar, before we say anything else, does anything strike you as interesting about that particular list of states? Um, yeah, actually. Uh, Nevada surprised me, and it kind mm -hmm. of worked. Um, I would have expected Nevada to be a little bit more, uh, I almost said safe seat. Um, right. Wrong but a little bit more uh, reliably blue than that. Um, so so that one had me a little nervous. Uh, the rest of them seemed like a pretty standard um, rundown of what we would have considered swing states in the last election or the last two elections. Well, um, except for Texas. Well, Texas, Texas, I guess, doesn't surprise me because the, the demographic information out of Texas for the last 10 or so years has kind of shown that it was always going to trend towards... Uh, purple at least mm -hmm. um, we've all sort of just been waiting for that to happen um I, I think we're still going to be waiting for that to happen um if i was biden i wouldn't be you know uh i wouldn't be chasing a white whale in texas yeah interesting 
So yeah, I I I too. Um, I mean, Nevada. I guess you could you could worry about it. I don't necessarily feel that worried about our chances in Nevada. I feel like we're gonna we're gonna take Nevada. I feel like if Arizona is competitive, which is more right leaning than Nevada, then we should be in good shape in Nevada. Maybe that's just my glass half full nature because I think you know I'm the optimist where you're the pessimist. Um, but the other things that stood out for me in this list, I was happy to see Iowa back on the list. I think for a couple election cycles, um, after Obama won it in 2008, it seemed less competitive for a while, but more recent polling is making it look competitive, which is exciting. Um, Georgia is a really exciting addition to the electoral map. It's something, again, back to 2008, Democrats had our eyes on Georgia every election cycle and every election cycle we fall just short, but demographic change has been continuing in that state. Um, and it does feel like like texas but perhaps on a slightly accelerated path um it feels like we do have a genuine opportunity there if we can really especially as we've got two senate elections happening in georgia this year so it's a state that we should really focus on um but yeah i think it's a really interesting map this year um pennsylvania is one state that i personally feel anxious about like that's if i had to pick if you picked nevada as your worry state pennsylvania is my worry state not because i don't think we'll win there i i think we are in good shape there but what worries me about it is a lack of data we don't have a lot of local of, of polling in pennsylvania we've got one or two polls over the last month or two and those polls showed pennsylvania closer than i would have liked um, so considering it was one of the big three that, that, uh, we lost in 2016, that we, we must regain. It's a lot of electoral votes in that state. I, I, I want to see more data that's showing more movement in our direction in that state. If I were Biden, I would be focusing, um, a lot of attention on Pennsylvania for two reasons. One is the reason you just gave, there are a lot of electoral votes there and it's a state that we can win. Two is it's his home state. He has a connection there. He's from Scranton. Like, yeah. knows he bleats on about it enough. Like, you know, which is fine. It's it, it's a perfectly lovely town. And and but but sort of really dig in there. You've got roots there. You're a Pennsylvanian. I mean, I know you represented Delaware for fifty years or however long, but but you're a Pennsylvanian. Um, and and so you know you know the state. You understand it. So use that connection to really drive home. Uh, or to really connect to voters. Um, I would be focusing a lot on Pennsylvania. I think that that's yeah. a state Joe Biden can win. Um, I would also be focusing a lot on Wisconsin and Michigan. Um, yep. And making up for the losses that we incurred there in 2016. What I hope doesn't happen, mm. I don't think will, um, is what happened in 2016 when I got a phone call from the Hillary Clinton campaign asking me to go campaign in Iowa. And I said, no, I would not do that. I will go to Wisconsin or to Ohio because I had family <laughs> who <laughs> had voted Democrat their entire lives and were voting for Trump. And so right. I could see the writing on the walls. And I remember the, and I mean, you know, I was called up as a volunteer to go knock on some doors. This was a low-level staffer, but I was told point blank, we're going to win Wisconsin and Ohio. We don't need to be there. You were uh, told you were going to win Ohio? They, that's what they said. They oh, were, they please. Um, so, you know, low-level staffer. Uh, don't, you know, read too much into into that. This was not probably somebody who 
had any authority to speak for the campaign. But that is what they told me. We think we can win Iowa. We're going to Ohio and uh, Wisconsin. And right. that's when I started getting nervous and was glad that I was. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is this is possibly the only good thing to come out of the 2016 election is I do not feel like Democrats are taking Wisconsin for granted right now. Um, I don't think that they're taking any state for granted. I just don't. We have a we sort of have a tendency, I think, of of getting a little cocky towards the end. Yeah. And it looks like it can't possibly, you know, it's ours to lose. Yeah. You know, we snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, I felt like John Kerry kind of did that in 2004. And certainly Hillary Clinton did that. In... <laughs> I'm having so many flashbacks. <laughs> um, yeah, so Traumatized. I, I just want us to not do that again and not take anything for granted. We do need to be competitive in Iowa. Yeah. Certainly want us to be competitive in Arizona because I think Arizona and Georgia are two states that that in the next quarter century could flip to blue or at least um and i want us to have presence in that in those states but really want us to so if you were so if you were biden campaign if you were biden's campaign manager current currently in the cycle as it stands would you focus on would you be taking a 2016 redux policy, i.e. let's lock down Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania? Or would you be focusing on a broader map of those state, campaigning in those states plus um, trying to equal, equally divide your resources amongst Arizona and Georgia? If I'm Biden's campaign manager and I'm working for Joe Biden and not the Democratic Party, um, I am focusing on Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. And yeah. I am letting, you know, I'm not worrying myself too much about Texas, Arizona, Georgia, even Ohio. Yeah. Um, I, I, I am focusing on states that I am convinced I can win, not states that I think I might win. Right. Um, what about Florida? What are you doing with that? <laughs> the eternal heartbreak of Florida. I don't know. I yeah. don't know. On the one hand, Florida is too big not to uh, campaign in because it, it it could go blue. It could end up voting for Biden. Um, on the other hand, how much time and how much money do you want to spend? And I haven't seen any polling out of Florida um, recently. I just haven't looked at it. So I don't know. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Um yeah, it's such a hard one. I was, I'll, t- I'll tell you what I think. If I were Joe Biden's campaign manager, with the polls as they currently stand, I would probably not take the policy, the, the approach that you're taking, um, because I have big. So I think my my big concern is I think we can win those midwest upper midwestern states, but if we if if things go against us in any of them, they're likely to go against us in quite a few of them, and all it would take would be Wisconsin is probably the closest of those three. It's ten electoral votes. If you knock Wisconsin out, um, and we can't, we find that we fall just short in Wisconsin. Um, then we're really in trouble because we need to cl- need to sweep all three of those. So I feel very insecure about that because 
I think that the, the the kind of the way that the states are shifting, Wisconsin feels like it's trending away from us, not in this election cycle particularly, because Joe Biden's numbers are pretty good there, but as a general rule. Um, so I just I'm just wary about putting all my eggs in one basket there. And I would probably say Arizona is 10 electoral votes. Um, I would probably I would probably play place an equal bet on Arizona and Wisconsin, um, hoping that if because, it you know, if 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 the types of messaging that resonate in the upper Midwest don't pay off for us, then we need to have an, we need to have a plan B. And I think we need to have I think Arizona is the best plan B. And it's close to Nevada where we're already doing, performing, as you said, pretty well. We won a Senate seat there in 2018. So we know we've proven that we can win statewide. Um, and it feels like it's trending in our direction. The demographics are shifting rapidly in that play, in that state. So I think I would I would place my bet there. And like you, I don't know what the fuck to do with Florida. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just crazy there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you make a good point about not putting all of our eggs in one basket. Um, and, and, and that is certainly something, you know, that the Biden campaign probably is thinking. If not, they should be thinking. Uh, I think that I, I think there's two key differences. One is that I am just incredibly pessimistic and <laughs> not convinced <laughs> that anything good can happen except the bare minimum so um and i think that that's just flashbacks to 2004 and 2016 um but i also i also think that i just don't trust polling anymore yeah. i just don't i don't trust polling at all um i i don't know if that's wise maybe i should but after 2016 um i i just i'm i'm a little i'm a little scarred so yeah. and a little jaded um so. but i think i think the polling question is can be misleading because i think you know i too am really anxious and nervous about polls and too i also have a lot of criticisms about the polling in 2016 but for me it's really important to think about what went wrong why did why were the polls off in 2016 and the national polls were pretty spot on right the national polls had hillary clinton winning by about a three to four point margin she lost by about a three point i mean she won by about a three point margin um in that, what went wrong in 2016 was a lack of good quality state polls, which is why I'm so worried about Pennsylvania. That's a good point, and um, see, I'm really hoping that he can he can milk his his connections to Pennsylvania. To, yeah, to, I'm really hoping. Maybe I'm naive and putting too much stock in that, but that's my hope. Um, Come on, Scranton. <laughs> but but you're right. I mean, the the state polls, and I've consistently said when ever anyone has pointed to a national poll in this election that's great show me wisconsin show me pennsylvania show me yeah. you know show me ohio show me uh, florida and i guess now nevada and arizona um, and georgia because yeah. I, we we don't live in a winner takes all you know or at least not in the popular vote we live in a weird electoral college where you know our votes matter but then they don't if you know, another state. I I don't know. I'm yeah. getting electoral college, but I mean, the state okay. matter the national vote. Yeah. So look, 
I'm going to ask you to put aside your natural pessimism now and imagine, imagine a universe in okay. which um, we have good reason, solid and reputable data to believe that Joe Biden is continuing to be very, very strongly performing in the polls. And we have unlimited resources. So all the money that we could possibly need and all the time and energy and attention Assuming that we wanted to expand beyond the list of um, states that you've talked about, or even beyond the list of um, currently currently swing states into what looks like soft red territory in this election, the next three states um, that are currently in lean Trump um, in the Real Clear Politics average are South Carolina, Missouri, and Indiana. If I was going to force you to pick one of those to say we've got an expansion opportunity, which, which one would you pick? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, I'm going to say, and it's really a toss-up between Indiana and Missouri, but I'm going to say Indiana just because I know it a little bit better. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think Indiana... Indianapolis is growing. Indianapolis is, um, you know, it's it's got about, I think, 800,000 people in it now. Um, it's only going to keep getting bigger. I think there is a tradition of labor activism within Indiana. Um, unions were strong. I think Pete Buttigieg has, um, you know, helped build the Democratic brand in Indiana. Um, but other Indiana Democrats have as well. Indiana has sent Democrats to Congress and to the Senate in particular, you know, in recent years. Um, so it's, it seems like, and Indiana voted for Obama in 2008. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me to be the one that would be the, the, the most winnable. Well, I don't want to say easy to win, but the most winnable. Yeah. I don't know enough about Missouri as a state to really understand what's going on there. Um, South Carolina, I'm surprised to see it on the list and I'll just leave it there. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny. I've got family in South Carolina. They're not from South Carolina, but they've lived there for a number of years now. So my, my half brothers both went to high school there. Um, I, I, I know that the state is changing rapidly, probably quicker than you'd think. My, my family is not unusual. There are a lot of Northern transplants into South Carolina um, and places like Greenville, very much kind of high tech. Um, you know, they're starting to look a little bit more like the Northeast corridor. Um, but I think it's probably happening slower there than it is in North Carolina, which is which is on our target list. But, you know, if Georgia is competitive and North Carolina is competitive, then South Carolina is in the middle of those. So it's not that hard to imagine how it could open up. Having said all that, I think your argument for Indiana all makes total sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can't it's, argue with it. You know, Indiana is um, I, I was born in Ohio. I was raised in Kentucky, I lived for years in Chicago. I'm supposed to hate Indiana with a with a fiery <laughs> passion. Um, it's actually a very interesting state and a very yeah. beautiful state, and um, one one I think Democrats should spend more money in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you say, Mayor Pete Mayor Pete demonstrated that you know you can come from there and 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 win some sport, and and Obama did win it not not that long ago. Yeah. 
Um, what about, okay, I'll allow you to revert to your natural pessimism and believe that everything is going to go terribly wrong. What if something horrible happens, we lose all our money, so we've only got, uh, you know, it, it, we've got very little money to play with, and the poles turn in our direction such that it's turn away from us, such that we're in danger of losing states that looked like they might be safe democratic states. The states that are currently listed as lean Democrat um, include states that I wouldn't expect us to lose, but we might. So places like Oregon, Colorado, New Mexico, Minnesota, Virginia, Connecticut, even Maine. If I was going to say we're going to lose one of those states on election night, which one would you be? Would you expect to be the first of that list to go? Minnesota. Mm. Because if we're going, my 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 instinct is that if we're going to lose any of them, it's going to be as you kind of said earlier. It's going to be along with Wisconsin and Michigan. We're going to lose, you know, so if, if those two fall and it looks like we're doing very badly there, I could see us possibly losing Minnesota. Um, Colorado and New Mexico, sort of logically I go there, but I, I really think that they're probably safer blue states than I'm giving them credit for. Um, Connecticut surprises me. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, when's the last time Connecticut voted for a Republican? Yeah, I don't. I don't think we're going to lose Connecticut. I think it's just a question yeah. of there probably aren't that many polls of Connecticut as well. So I suspect the data is not great for there. But Minnesota would be the one I would think we would be most likely to lose if we end up taking a hit in the Midwest. And I think that it's part of a a regional problem we're having in the Midwest. Yeah. Outside of Chicago. Um, and that is a bigger issue than Joe Biden. That is a bigger issue than 2020. And that's an issue the Democratic Party is going to have to work on in the coming years. Um, but I yeah. hope we don't lose Minnesota. I hope we, we keep it. And I think we will. Yeah. Um, so I'm not totally pessimistic there. I think we'll keep Minnesota. But... I, I agree. I think we'll keep Minnesota. But, um, you know, having said that, I'm going to like, what is it, uh, you know, turn around three times and spit because... <laughs> <laughs> lest I incur the wrath of the thing from high above. Well, um, you know, we know it won't be... We, Amy Klobuchar is going to be free to campaign there as much as possible. <laughs> vice president, so... Do your thing, Amy. So Amy. Amy can win it for us. It's the only nice thing I've heard about Amy Klobuchar, publicly. She's... I will- she's She's, I, I, you know, I was going to say she's a lovely person, but I'm not sure she is. But she's a good politician in her state. Personally, so I can't say whether she's a lovely person or not. I will say she's a solid Democrat. She's a solid Democrat, and I like watching her kick ass in in the Senate. Um, I think one interesting thing that I wanted to pull out about that list of states, which I, I tend to agree with you about your assessment in Minnesota, and it's also true that that Donald Trump thinks Minnesota is his best opportunity from that. Um, so whether he's right about that. I don't know. It would be the first time he's right about anything, but I think he might be. I'm very interested, however, that pretty low on my list of states I would expect us to lose is Virginia, which is a state I know really well. And I just think it's worth just taking a pause to note how quickly the politics of that state have changed, because it was not that long ago that it was a reliably Republican Southern state. And now it is definitely not. Yeah, I mean, as of 2004, I feel like it was still reliably Republican. And then Obama won it in 2008. 
and I don't think the Democrats have lost it since. Nope. Um, and I remember Obama winning Virginia in 2008 and being very surprised. Yeah, it was a big deal. Uh, not really understanding what had happened to to sort of flip it blue and really expecting that it would revert to form in 2012, and it hasn't. Yeah. Uh, I understand a little bit more about the state now, having made myself learn about it because it, it just blew my mind. Um, you know, I didn't realize how populated the Northern Virginia suburbs, the DC suburbs were. I did not. And, and I think most people who aren't from Virginia don't understand how much of the population is concentrated in a very few counties there on the Northern part of the state. Um, so you think Virginia you're you're worried that we're going to lose it or you're not no no the opposite I feel confident about Virginia and I just think it's really interesting that I would not put it near the top of my list of states to worry about um you know maybe again you know touch wood maybe again I'm being overconfident but um but I think it's really interesting and I think as you say the demographic change there has been has been dramatic um the the DC suburbs the northern the Nova the Nova region northern Virginia um is is like very populous skews ever more democratic um but the rest of the state has also skewed slightly less republican so it isn't just the domination of the 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 northern suburbs it's also that there've been a reduction in the kind of share the vote share of republicans at at a statewide level and that's for all kinds of reasons to do with the kind of changing industries in there that like it's you know like the re- like the rest of the south i was talking about it's having new industries coming in they've got high tech corridors like a lot of trans a lot of transplants from other parts of the country but also just like younger generations in virginia tend to be much less um much less conservative um but yeah it's a it's a it's a fascinating state and um and and like really interesting that trump doesn't doesn't really compete there very well it speaks it speaks to the people of virginia that he doesn't uh, <laughs> it, it, i love it, virginians their character so uh, <laughs> yeah i mean Virginia, Virginia is the first of what I think will be uh, over the next two or three decades, a changing political uh, narrative in the South. Yeah, I think that Democrats are going to be a lot more competitive in a lot of Southern states. Um, well, maybe I'm being optimistic there, but I, I'm hopeful. I think that the Democrats of the South are changing. Yeah. I, I think it's I think that's true. I also think that the racial dynamics of that are changing as well. Um, one of the big one of the big trends um, in the very last few years, especially within the kind of democratic leaning voters, has been a change of racial attitudes by white people. And it used to be that the South was such a polarized, so polarized along racial grounds that it was just Democrats never vote. You know, re- like white people would never vote Democrat, and and black people would never vote Republican. Um, and I think actually that the intensity of that, especially amongst younger generations, has changed and that white people are more, more open to the prospect to open to understanding, you know, with Black Lives Matter, the, even across the South, there's a much kind of people are much more open to the idea that actually the, the, the like that the, 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 the black people deserve more than society is granting them. And that will, that might unlock a lot. 
I think you're right. And I think that you're seeing that um, play out in real time over the last few weeks, you know, with a sort of reassessment of Confederate iconography in, mm -hmm. in the South, um, which is something I've been talking about, if not publicly, certainly personally with people for 12, 15 years now as a Southerner. Um, it's something, you know, I've had conversations about in Mississippi and in Tennessee and in North Carolina and um, the, the sort of great indicator that maybe the South is having a very belated reckoning um, is Mississippi finally changing its flag. Oh my God. Um, like how am I <laughs> that was huge. Like, not that that's honestly something I, uh, I, I did not think I would live to see. I mean, yeah. the election of the first black president was less shocking to me than Mississippi finally changing its flag because they had, they had resisted for so long and they held yeah. a referendum about 20 years ago, I think. And the majority of the population said, no, we, we don't want to change the flag. Um, so that was a long time coming and I'm hoping is a sign of better days to come. A hundred percent. I mean, Mississippi taking the Confederate. I mean, first of all, like the, the New Englander in me has to be like, why is this happening now? Like, why is this something that we even need to do? Like, why was it ever like, why would you put the flag, the emblem of a country that is not yours and that was directly created to oppose your country in a treasonous manner but, but that's me culturally i have a great deal of difficulty sympathizing with confederate um like historical nostalgia i i, I just have no time for it but uh <laughs> we could and if you know if you ever want to have me on for a show where i talk about confederate iconography and the nostalgia for a south that never was yeah it, take an entire show but um yeah, I mean, it is a it is a valid question, and it is one that I think that that the South needs to be asking itself is like, why yeah. are we traitors? Um, but you know, leaving the politics of it aside, um, whether it signals a, a new era for Democrats in the South, it certainly signals a new era for race relations. I hope, I hope, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe it's not my place to say, yeah. but um, I'm I'm hopeful that maybe it's a sign of better things to come. It, it feels like that. And actually, here's an interesting thought that I'm just going to drop with you. Um, I believe that to at least some extent, Donald Trump's explicit efforts to try and divide America on racial grounds is one of the reasons why this is happening. Because I think he reflects, people see a mirror reflected and they don't like what they see in, in, when they look at him. And I, I and and I think he has not. I think he is ironically has turned a lot of people who had implicit racial bias um, towards being actively anti-racist, um, because I, because they don't like him, and and he comes across badly, and then they look at his attitudes towards race and they recoil from it. And where they might previously have let something pass or or had more sympathy with some of these reactionary attitudes. I think a lot of people who are kind of un unreflective on racial issues have actually had to stop and think. I think that I'm going to go pessimistic and revert to course or revert to nature. And then I'm going to go optimistic. <laughs> I think for a lot of people, they look at him and they see him as they don't see him as racist, but his racism 
they see themselves in that mm. and right on. Um, there are a lot of people for whom they wouldn't call him racist, but they like the racism. Um, mm. And I, because there are people in my own family who, yeah. you know, I see that, that, well, he's saying what I've always thought. Yeah. And I'm like, that's the problem. Um, there are definitely people like that, but he and he relies upon those people. But what I'm saying is there are a lot more people than he realizes who are on the other side of that shift. And I think that that is, that is what makes me hopeful, is yeah. that I think you're absolutely right, is that he has held up a mirror to America, and uh, America looked in it and recoiled. Right. And no. that gives me a lot of hope for yeah. not just... November, but for the country's future in general, that there are a lot of people who are finally seeing a very ugly truth about, you know, mm. what this country has been built on and what this country continues to be in many regards. So, yeah. so yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Um, and maybe that will be his most lasting legacy. Mm. I hope so. I would like to believe that the thing that survives of the Trump presidency will be a racial reconciliation. That would be a both a beautiful thing to happen for the country and a wonderful fuck you to this man. <laughs> yes. That's couldn't have put it better myself. Let it be so. Right. Um, Skylar, I think we've come to the end of our conversation about swing states, but have you got a few minutes we can uh, we can play the gut check game? Absolutely. Fantastic. So for those of you who are uh, new to the podcast, uh, the gut check game is an exercise whereby I have got little slips of paper in which I've written down quotes or sayings heard from around the campaign trail. I'm going to pull them out of my trusty Red Sox baseball cap at random, read them out, and then Skylar and I will just react to them and just check our guts. How do we feel about that? So without further ado, um, the first one I've pulled out. Okay, this is a quote from Joe Biden. Uh, the man himself. It says, and this is from a, a speech that he gave reacting to the, the jobs numbers that came out, um, which showed strong job growth, um, but were uh, from before the virus started to reappear. Um, he says, quote, just yesterday, he, that's the president, was once more claiming that the coronavirus would, quote, just disappear, I hope. It's like deja vu all over again. We're months into the crisis, and that's still your best answer? Quit hoping for the best, Mr. President. Quit claiming victory with almost 15 million Americans still out of work because of this crisis. Quit ignoring the reality of this pandemic and the horrifying loss of American life. Act, lead, or get out of the way so others can. Why waste your breath? I mean, why? The, the man has shown he has no capacity for leadership or no capacity for empathy or no capacity for any sort of deep, meaningful thought. Um, I honestly believe he's probably the dumbest person to have ever held the presidency. Um, I, I, I just I think the time for imploring Donald Trump to act it is over and has long been over, I think. And, and I understand Joe Biden is sort of using a rhetorical flourish to draw a distinction between himself and the president. And, and that I get. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but you know, what's the point? Like, he's not, he can't possibly do this. We all know it. Just sit up there and say, you know what? This, this clown can't do the job. I can do the job. 
That's what I want to hear Joe Biden say. Can you believe this? <laughs> Skylar, I'm, I'm shocked by your cynical suggestion that the president of the United States is not going to take this advice to heart and really work collaboratively to try and overcome these problems. Hey, I have two eyes and two ears that literate, unlike the president, and uh, can read what he has said. So <laughs> I, my yeah. opinion by his own actions. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I quite liked the formulation of act, lead, or get out of the way so others can. And I think there's power of using the rhetorical device of addressing the president because it does make you stop and think, what would a normal president do, right? You, you would expect a normal president to be working on this problem and the fact that he isn't and that, like, even at an instinctive level, as you say, when you hear that, you think, oh, he's not going to do anything. And then that's like powerful. You suddenly realize, well, hang on. I don't expect him to do anything. That's wrong. I mean, the, the expectations for this man are so historically low. Like the bar is scraping the floor. Yeah. And I, even among his own party. I mean, yeah. it, it's, I mean, he makes George Bush look like Albert Einstein. And that's just, I never thought another politician would do that. But yeah. Like, it is an effective flourish and a rhetorical device. You're right. I think. Yeah. I mean, all I can say is that may the may the Republican Party never have. Uh, like, I'm worried when George W. Bush left office. I thought he was the worst president of my lifetime and unlikely to be worsened. Apparently, the Republican Party was like, "Hold my beer. <laughs> we can oh, do so much worse." Coming your way in the form of Tom Cotton. Ugh. Ugh. Don't even. Ugh. Right. Okay. Speaking of uh, speaking of Trump's horribleness, um, the next item on my in, my in my trusty Red Sox baseball cap is the title of a book. It's actually the title of Mary Trump's book, which was uh, this week the Trump administration tried to block from publication um, and and failed to do so. Um, so it is going to come out. The title of the book is quote Too much and never enough: How my family created the world's most dangerous man. I can't wait to read this. <laughs> it's going to be so good. I, I followed her on Twitter. Um, I had never heard of her until uh, maybe last week or the week before, whenever it was that I read in the, the Washington Post that, that the Trump administration was trying, or Donald Trump in particular, the Trump family, uh, was trying to block publication of this book, um, which might have been the dumbest thing that they could do because it's only brought more attention to... You know, it's like the Streisand effect, except right. for politics. Um, I had never heard of her before. Had no idea. I mean, I I do remember reading because I read David K. Johnson's book uh, back in 2016 when he wrote it during the Trump uh, campaign. Um, so I do remember hearing about the, her through the, the lawsuit that she filed against Donald Trump. But I'd forgotten about it, you know, yeah. and I, I she was not in my consciousness at all. Um, now I can't wait to read <laughs> what she has to say. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know if there will be any revelations that are particularly groundbreaking or shocking. You know, we already kind of know how awful yeah. the family is, but, yeah, um, she'll get my money anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unlike John Bolton, whose book I want to read, but I'm going to try and find it in a library because I don't yeah, want any money. I can't in good conscience. I, I want to read his book too, but I, I it's the same with the anonymous book, you know, or right. whatever. Yeah, yeah. 
I have not read that. I just can't bring myself to financially support um, people who are willing to make money off of their experiences with Trump, but aren't willing to actually speak up when yeah. they have a platform or the ability, you know, right. so. So on Mary, on Mary Trump's book, I mean, there's so much in here. There's so much in this mini story that is illustrative of why Donald Trump is one of the worst human beings on the face of the planet. Um, one of which is that, first of all, he tried to block the publication of a book, which is almost impossible in the American legal system because there's a presumption of freedom of speech. And the fact that he thought he could go for a kind of preemptive blocking is just, as he did with, with, with Walter's book as well, it's just like, oh, come on, dude. Like, he doesn't care. He's not interested. But the other thing about it that I think I, I'm glad that the book is making some waves now because I, I wanted some refocus on this story. Mary Trump was the 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 main source for a New York Times art, uh, investigation that was published, I think, last year, um, reporting that the Trump family had violated all kinds of laws um, in terms of the the inheritance and the Trump family taxation, that they'd um, violated all kinds of, of tax rules um, and explicitly, you know, done so on purpose around that inheritance. Um, and again, you know, like it's Un, it's bizarre to me that like we just take for take as read that the president of the United States is it routinely breaks the laws to the disadvantage of the American taxpayer because that's what he does. Um, it is bizarre. And it is something that, you know, I, you said earlier, and I think you're right, that we really should pause and reflect on more it, just how low the bar is set for this president and how much we have come to just accept as a given yeah. for him. But I didn't know I didn't know Mary Trump was uh, one of the sources for that story. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, so she was the she was the major source, and that's why they had so they got so much information. In fact, including the the New York Times got the actual doc documents that were that the family had filed, and that's because they had a member of the family who was their source. God, I like her even more. I know it's so good. Is it? <laughs> oh well, you know, do you know the story of her father, right? So. Yeah. And um, the story of her father and her brother, I believe yeah. it was her brother, right? They had cystic fibrosis. Um, I, I think it was, but somebody fact-checked me on that just to make sure. But her brother had a chronic illness, and Donald Trump tried to take away his health insurance coverage, um, which was covered through her inheritance, if I recall. So, um, yeah. you know, which is just uh, allegedly Donald Trump yeah. tried to. I should say, just to cover our legal, uh, <laughs> legal butts. But yeah. allegedly, Donald Trump tried to, you know, cut off his sick nephew's uh, health insurance, which is just a vile thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. He is, newsflash, the President of the United States is a horrible human being. So. <laughs> I saw this. I saw this thing on Twitter. There was a, no, no, it wasn't in Twitter. It was, a, it was a Washington Post article I was reading, which was talking about voters who were swinging from Trump to Biden. Um, and I was just fascinated because somebody was saying, if he wasn't such a horrible human being, he might make a great president. And I'm like, I cannot bring the two parts of that sentence together. <laughs> it was, did you say the New York Times? Uh, I, I thought it was the Post, but yeah, it was one of those. There was a New York Times article I haven't read, but I've been meaning to go back and find about people who will never vote for Trump again or something. So yeah. um, maybe it was maybe it was that Times article, but I just like it blew my mind. I, I wait, what what if he wasn't such a horrible person, maybe he would be a good president. Yeah, I mean, 
like I guess maybe they mean like I agree with him on policy issues but personally he's just repugnant I, I but his policies are part of his like I I don't know I don't know so yeah but last one um let's hear from the man himself this is donald trump himself reacting to reports so this is another news story we didn't even talk about this week which is just sick makes me sick to my stomach reacting to reports that russia has been secretly paying bounties to the killers of u.s servicemen in afghanistan and that the white house was briefed on this information by the by the intelligence service and took no action trump tweeted in response to the story quote Intel just reported to me that they did not find this info credible and therefore did not report it to me or VP, possibly another fabricated Russia hoax, maybe by the fake news NYT New York Times books wanting to make Republicans look bad, quadruple exclamation mark. Yeah, I don't believe him. Of course I, not. You know, he has no credibility. And, um, you know what russia did and i believe that russia did it um i don't always believe our intelligence uh community because you know i was alive and conscious during the iraq war but um so i i know that sometimes intelligence is wrong but i do believe that they are they are right in this um and that that is what the intelligence said and if so it is an act of war mm -hmm. and the president of the united states is ignoring an act of war against the United States of America. And, and that really is the realization of so many of my fears about this man, is that he is not prepared to defend our country. Now, I'm not saying that we should attack Russia or invade Russia in kind. The world is far too complicated to return like for like, but, but something needs to give and you know his just complete lack of concern for this report um is is deeply deeply worrying mm -hmm. and um I, I i i don't know and we have got to get that man out of office in november i mean it is a matter of national security at this point 100 percent yeah. Um, so I think on this, first of all, on the intel point, the intel is credible. Um, it has it has been we've had it for apparently John Bolton says that he was first briefed on it a year ago. So, yeah. um, you know, it has been longstanding. No action has been taken. I think it's actually worse than what you said at what you said, because you said he doesn't care. I would say the other way around. I would say he's actively on advocating for Russia openly in public policy to get debates wherever possible. He has been while he's had this intelligence available to him and after it was in his president's daily briefing, um, he actively advocated for Russia to be put back into the G7. Um, he has been standing up for, for, for Vladimir Putin right, left and center um, and has shown no indication that he takes Russia seriously as a threat. In fact, he's, 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 he's sided with Russia against our European allies. So uh, it's not just that he doesn't care. He's on the other side of this. Like, yeah, that's a good point. He, he, he is, you know, American servicemen and women are dying and he is on the side of the people killing them. There's no, there's no like more clear cut way of saying it than that. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's, 
You know, my, my, I, I've talked about it publicly before. I try not to harp on it too much because I, I don't think he particularly likes the attention, but my brother is, is a soldier and he's currently serving overseas and having this man be the commander in chief, um, makes me worry about my brother's safety and the safety of yeah. all of our troops. And, um, learning this, I, I didn't think it was possible for me to hate Donald Trump anymore. And I don't use the word hate lightly. Like, I don't think I've ever hated anyone before in my life. I hate Donald Trump. Like I have a visceral hatred. Like, remember when people danced in the street after Thatcher died and, and I, didn't really understand it. I felt that was just a bit much. I will dance a fucking jig like, when we defeat Donald Trump. Um, and I hope Donald Trump lives a long and happy life. Um, but, oh. Okay. Come here, Sophie. Can you say hi to my friend Skyler? It's like Hi. <laughs> All right, sweetheart. I'll come down in three minutes and we can have some chocolate, okay? I just need to finish this, okay? Sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, it's at Sky News and BBC had something similar happen yesterday, I think. So it's it's the perils of working at home during during quarantine. Absolutely. And to be fair, it's been it's been well over an hour, so she's been super patient. Uh, to end on then uh, then Donald Trump. So. <laughs> <laughs> Happier news. On behalf of your brother, um, who deserves so much better, and my daughter, who deserves so much better, um, you know, I hope that the people who are serving overseas, and I hope that the children who are growing up at this time in history, will come November be able to look forward to a, a much better future. <laughs> oh, here, here. You're here. Listen, Skylar, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I will see you tonight for Hamilton Palooza. <laughs> Yes, yes, I'm excited. It's the it'll be the middle of the afternoon here, so I'm I'm gonna take a. I'll probably be drinking tea instead of gin, but um... <laughs> tea is appropriate. Just throw some of it in the sea, and you you're on it. <laughs> I should switch to coffee. Maybe I, I seriously have thought about wrapping a Union Jack around me during the. Nice. <laughs> broadcast just because i'm like yes it's a great musical but i still secretly root for george the third are you gonna but... cosplay as the king yeah i should have uh, do you know, was... should give yourself a little like burger king crown i don't i don't um Make i have something a... out of aluminum foil yeah maybe i will um but yeah it'll be fun and if you haven't listened to hamilton or seen hamilton um certainly if you have disney plus check it out because it's it's yeah. a one musical and it's perfect for this time of year you know tomorrow's the tomorrow's the fourth of july so absolutely do not throw away your shot yeah do not throw away your shot and and just you know learn a little bit about american history through the music of hip-hop so absolutely we're just like our country we're young scrappy and hungry and we're not throwing away our shot ah. thank you skylar talk to you soon bye And that's it. As always, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Karen Jr. That's at K-A-R-I-N-J-R on Twitter. Um, if you have enjoyed this podcast, it would mean so much to me if you could give it a rating or a review. Um, it really does help people find it in the podcast player app, and it makes me really happy. So if you want to make me smile, leave a rating or review. 
Um, if you are an American listening to the sound of my vote, my voice, please make sure you request your absentee ballot and register to vote in this election cycle. Even if you believe that you are previously registered and even if you believe you're on, uh, on board to receive an absentee ballot, just go ahead and request a ballot anyway, just in case. And you can't be too careful. States do have the right to take you off the rolls between election cycles. So nobody wants to get to election day and find that they haven't been able to get their votes in. And obviously we don't know what the situation is going to be in November. So get those requests in at votefromabroad.org if you're an American overseas like me or vote.org if you're back at home. Finally, I should let you know that this podcast is not affiliated with any other organization or entity. It is just me and I wish you a very happy week.